We're going to be looking at a very important passage of scripture this morning. Let's turn together to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 19 to verse 25. 19 to 25. Verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning you would take this passage of Scripture and the truth that's contained in it, this most important truth, And I pray, Lord, that you would just drive it into our hearts this morning, that you would help us to see what you are saying in this passage, that you would remove our confusion, that you would remove what distracts us from seeing what you're saying, that, Lord, we would truly understand and grab a hold of this truth which will set us free. Lord, thank you for giving us this passage of Scripture. And I just pray that this morning as we look at it, Lord, you would do a work in our hearts and that your word would be honored and that your name would be glorified in what we consider here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last Sunday, if you remember, we looked at verses 15 through 18 and we looked at a further argument for justification by grace through faith alone. Paul gave us another argument, and that argument essentially was this. God gave the inheritance or the blessing to Abraham by promise. God gave the inheritance by promise. It was an unconditional, unilateral bequeathing of blessing to Abraham, to his descendants, and to the world. And there's an intrinsic difference between promise and law between God giving his pledge unconditionally and between God giving us conditions uh, that we have to fulfill in order to obtain that inheritance. So there's an intrinsic difference between God giving a promise and God giving a law. Those two things are mutually exclusive. And Paul says God gave the inheritance by promise. Therefore, it's not obtained by obedience to the law. I'd like to... uh, share a illustration from Charles Swindoll and his, uh, he has a, here a, a study guide in Galatians and I thought this was an excellent 
illustration of that point. That illustrates this point. Suppose you promise your four-year-old that you'll take him to Disneyland for his fifth birthday, which happens to be six months away. There it is, locked in, an unconditional promise, come rain or shine, crowded or not, regardless of your work schedule or the child's behavior between now and then, you're going to see Mickey mark it in red on the calendar. <laughs> you promised your son. Now about three months pass, however, and your son starts exhibiting some challenging behavioral problems. You know, the kind that makes you wonder what you were thinking when you decided to have kids. Part of your plan to correct the behavior involves rewarding obedience and reproving disobedience. You don't bribe and threaten, mind you. You genuinely want to encourage responsible behavior and get to the heart of your child. Perhaps you end a particularly good day by going out for ice cream and heaping words of praise and encouragement on your son. Or maybe you decide to temporarily withhold privileges like television for rebellious behavior. Your plan seems to be working. The little guy actually seems to enjoy doing the right thing. But then, the evening before the Disneyland trip, he responds to your instructions to clean up his room by throwing the mother of all temper tantrums. Disneyland? Ha! You say to yourself. Mickey and Goofy will be in an old cartoon character's home by the time my kid gets to go there. <laughs> but guess what? You promised him Disneyland on his birthday. Period. Are you going to let the boys fail while relinquishing the integrity of your word? How many of you can kind of see what Charles Swindoll is saying there? You give a promise unconditionally, unilaterally. You bequeath it. You pledge it. We're going. I am going to take you there on your birthday. In between, his behavior does not nullify that promise that you gave. That's Paul's point in the passage that we looked at last week. God gave this blessing by an unconditional pledge. His word and his honor is at stake, and the law, which came 430 years later, doesn't nullify that promise. It's going to happen. It's ours simply to believe and to trust in God. That's what Paul's point was that we looked at last week. However, this raises an objection. Why then did God give the law? If what you're saying is true, Paul, that justification is by grace through faith alone, and that God promised all this blessing and he just pledged it unconditionally, why then did God give the law? And you know, this question here in Galatians 3.19, why the law then, would never have come up, think about it, if Paul wasn't preaching justification through faith alone without the law, right? If the, if the book of Galatians was preaching that we have to keep the law, this question would never come up. So this, is, this shows us, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying we're not justified through obedience to the law. And it raises the objection, what's the whole point of the law then? And you know, this is a valid question. Because God didn't just give a promise and leave it there. He didn't just give a promise, an unconditional pledge, and just leave it there and later kind of got mad with the behavior of Israel. He also gave the law, and it was a major event in the history of the world, 
right? The law was no little thing. So God did not only give the promise, he also brought in this law, a major, major event. I want us this morning to, to really reflect upon the agitator's side here, upon the side of those who aren't Christians, upon the side of Jews when they think about the law and justification, so that we don't just put up a straw man in a caricature. Let's think about their side for a minute. Here's what the agitators and the Jews are saying. The law of God shows us, tells us, that blessings depend upon obedience and righteousness, right? So God promises blessings to Abraham, to his descendants, and to the world. And then he introduces the law that says, blessings depend upon righteousness. And what the agitators of the Jews would say is that the law is just explaining reality, the law is just showing you the nature of things. Yeah, God promised a blessing. We don't deny it. But, you know, in the nature of things, you've got to be righteous in order to be blessed. The law is explaining how things work. And God cannot bless us without righteousness. God cannot overlook our sins. God cannot look at us as unrighteous people and bless us. Not possible. So the law isn't going against the promise here. It's just explaining the nature of things. That's how things work. The law was anticipated in the original promise. When God promised Abraham a blessing, he anticipated he was going to later give the law to explain how the blessing is going to come, the only way it could come. And in that sense, the law is itself a blessing to bring us to the blessing. The law is a gift from God that teaches us what is right and wrong, that teaches us about the nature of reality, that teaches us how we're going to be, get the blessing, and that enables us to get the blessing if we obey. So the law is a beautiful, good gift so that we can get the blessing promised to us by Abraham. This is what Jews believe today, brothers and sisters. The law is a gift. The promise that God gave awaits our obedience to the law. If we are disobedient, that promise will not come. If we are obedient, that promise will come. But get this, there's encouragement. One day we will get it since God promised it. He must have known one day we're going to do it. So they have hope. Yeah, we haven't got it yet, but it's coming because God said it would come. We're going to get it if we obey this beautiful law. That's the mind of the Jew and of the agitator in the book of Galatians. The one who's saying, no, Paul's wrong. It's, it is not simply by faith alone. The law is a gift. And you know, this way seems to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? I think if you don't think this way seems to make a lot of sense, you really haven't seen uh, this perspective. And you won't appreciate why so many people believe this perspective and go down this way, right? It seems to make a lot of sense. And you know, Paul's way and the Christian way doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Why then the law? Think about it. Okay, he gives us this promise, unconditional. You're going to be blessed. Why introduce this major event, the law, and make conditions on it? So the first way seems to make sense, but the other way doesn't. In this study this morning, we're going to see what the Christian answer is to that question, why then the law? We're going to see what Paul's answer is, which is the Christian answer. And we're going to see that we're dealing with two totally different understandings of salvation 
two totally different ways, two totally different concepts of God's work and of the way of achieving the blessing of salvation. We're going we're gonna to break this down into three uh, points this morning. One, we're going to look first at Paul's answer that he gives in brief why the law was given. So the first thing we're going to briefly look at why the law was given. Secondly, we're going to look at the circumstantial inferiority of the giving of the law to the giving of the promise. The circumstantial inferiority, and I'll explain that, of the giving of the law versus the circumstantial superiority of the giving of the promise. And lastly, we're going to see how the law serves the promise and is not against it. How the law serves the promise and is not against it. First, the brief answer to why the law was given. Paul, in verse 19, gives a brief answer to the question, which he will explain fully in verses 21 to 25. He gives a brief answer in verse 19, which he will explain fully in verses 21 to 25. And let's look at that together. Verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. That's the brief answer. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions until, he says in verse 19. So here in verse 19, we have a brief statement of the purpose of the law, why it was given, and its duration, that is, temporary. The law was given until the seed would come. So it was given with a temporary duration in mind for the purpose of transgressions. Notice that Paul does not say, why the law then? It was given as the means of fulfilling the promise. He doesn't say that. Why the law? It was given to justify. He doesn't say that. He says, because of transgressions. Now, the agitators might say this in reply. The law was given because of transgressions. Yes. Yes. I agree, Paul. I agree. Because sin is what needed to be dealt with in order for the blessing to come. So the agitators would agree here. Yeah, the law was given because of transgressions. Our transgressions and sins stood in the way of our receiving the blessing. And so the law was given to fix that problem of sins. The law was given so that sin would be stopped. The law serves to stop sin. And when sin is dealt with through obedience to the law, then the blessing will come. Really? Is that why the law was given? Because of transgressions to stop them? Does the law serve to put an end to sin? Does the law serve to, to produce obedience in the lives of those that it's given to? Have you looked at Israel's history? Did you see what the law did when the law came to them? The law did not do that. The law did not stop sins when it was given to Israel. The law actually made things worse according to the Old Testament, according to the Bible. That God actually gave the law, and when they had run with it for a while, he said, you know, you guys have actually corrupted yourself worse than everybody else who doesn't even have the law. You guys are worse than all the ignorant nations now. 
Was the law really given to stop transgressions when you consider Israel's history that it did not do that, but in fact did the exact opposite. And note further that when God gave the law, God said right from the beginning that they would not do it. Right? So right from the beginning when God gave the law, make no mistake, you can read it there in, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and Numbers and even in Joshua, and you can read it throughout the prophets, that God says, you are not going to do this. You are stubborn and sinful and you haven't listened from the beginning and you sure aren't going to listen after you get this law, right? So God knew all along right from the beginning when he gave the law that they weren't going to do it. He was under no naive delusion that this was actually going to help and this was actually going to bring the blessing. Amen? God did not give the law naively thinking this is going to bring the blessing. They are going to keep this and they're going to be blessed because they're going to keep it. This is going to stop transgressions and sins. How many of you have experienced that in your own life, right? Rules and laws and threats do not stop your transgressions and your sins, do they? We'll talk about that in a little bit, a little while later. And this also, this view of the agitators regarding the law, why it was given to stop sins, doesn't account for the temporary nature of the law. The temporary nature of the law. You see, the Jews believe that the law will remain what is the way of the blessing forever. That the law once given is perpetually the way of the blessing. And Israel will eventually, or the world will eventually be perpetually blessed because they will become perpetually obedient. And so the law has come. The law is the only means, and it will always be the only means by which we are blessed. Obedience to God's commandments. And yet this overlooks Jeremiah 31 the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. You see, Paul here, when he says the law was given until, he's thinking of the temporary duration of the law, which this isn't just a New Testament idea. This is found in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, you'll remember, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. Right? So God says, I, uh, yeah, I made a covenant with them when I brought them out of Egypt, and they broke it. Even though I was their husband, they broke it. I'm going to make a new covenant not like the old. And you know, the, the Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus and the agitators miss that, and they don't see the new covenant as a whole new thing. They don't see the old covenant as temporary and the new covenant as coming to replace something that doesn't work. They actually read Jeremiah 31 and they say, all that means is God's going to renew the covenant. It's not the new covenant, it's the renewed covenant. He's just going to renew the old, the old law again. In fact, they believe God constantly does that. Every time Israel fails and repents, that's basically a, a renewal of the covenant at Mount Sinai. How many of you are familiar with this in your own life? You know, you, you make these deals with God. God, I'm going to keep your commandments. God, I promise I'm going to do it. And when I do it, you'll bless me. Then you fail, right? And then you say, God, give me another chance, please, right? God, I'm going to renew this covenant with you. I'm going to start again, turning over a new leaf, right? And it never works. The new, the new covenant, the Jeremiah 31 covenant that he's talking about and that Paul's noticing here is not a renewed 
covenant of the old covenant. But it's a brand new one that replaces the old. The law is temporary in its duration. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You'll see Paul makes this perfectly clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that he understands that the new covenant actually replaces the old covenant. It's not a renewal of the old one. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. God has made us adequate servants of a new covenant. When he says new covenant here, he's thinking about, of course, the new covenant that God promises in Jeremiah 31. God has made us adequate servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, let's just clarify one thing. When Paul says not of the letter, all he means by that is not of the law. The word letter is just a a word that was used to mean law. So we're not talking about letters in our Bible or anything like that, okay? As some Christians take this. They think it means, you know, if you base your religion off letters in the book, then you're not basing your religion off the truth. That's not it. It's not of the law, he says. Notice, we're, we're ministers of the new covenant, not of the law. What's the law? That's the old covenant. But of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law kills It's the Spirit. Remember what the Spirit is, right? It's God's activity and God's work that brings life. That's what the new covenant's all about in Jeremiah. I will, God says. You guys broke the old covenant, but a new covenant's coming when I will forgive your sins. I will put my law in your heart. I will make you my own and be your God. Now he says in verse 7, if the ministry of death, now he's calling the law the ministry of death. If the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a fail over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of that which was fading away. See, Moses, it says, covered his face. Remember when his face shone when he went and got the commandments from the law and he came back and his face was shining? And it says he put a veil over his face. And we read that and we think, he put a veil over his face so he wouldn't scare everybody, you know? Because his face was shining so brightly, everyone was afraid. And so he put that over so that they wouldn't get scared. But here Paul says, actually, he put it over his head so that they wouldn't see that the glory faded from his face. As long as he had that veil over his face, they thought the glory was still there so that the children of Israel could not see to the end of what was fading away. That is, until this day, the Jews believe there is no end to the law. It doesn't have a temporary duration. It's the only glory that there is. It's the only way of salvation that there is. But Paul says, when a person turns to the Lord, in verse 16, that veil is taken away, and they realize 
There is an end to that ministry of death. There is an end to that law. It has glory, but it faded away. And there's a new glory that has come that remains that is far more glorious. Amazing. So Paul sees in 2 Corinthians 3, the new covenant is not just a renewal of the old covenant. It's not just a re- this, the moving on of the ministration of death. It's the ministration of life through Jesus Christ and it replaces the old. They can't see that end. But we Christians see that there was an end to the giving of the old covenant. (coughs) Let's turn back to Galatians chapter 3. Paul states in brief, the law was given because of transgressions. And we've looked at how the agitators would understand that. Yeah, yeah, to stop sins. But we've seen how that really doesn't line up with the scriptures. There's another way of understanding this phrase because of transgressions. Instead of thinking it was given to stop transgressions and sins. The other way of understanding because of transgressions is that the law was given not to stop transgressions, but to show transgressions. Not to stop transgressions, but to show transgressions. In fact, many translations of of the Bible translate this phrase in that way. For example, Moffat's New Testament, he says it like this, the law was given, quote, for the purpose of producing transgressions. What an odd thing to say. For the purpose of producing transgressions. Now this becomes clear when we consider the words that Paul uses. They're amazing words. The word because in the Greek is the word charin. It's actually a word that's related to to the word grace, charis. And the word charin, it's not the usual word for because. It actually means for the sake of, or even more specifically, in favor of. Which is odd, isn't it? The law was given for the sake of, or in favor of, transgressions. The law was given in favor of transgressions. And we also need to realize that the word transgressions is a special word to Paul which only exists with law. The word transgression only exists where there is law. You remember in Romans chapter 4? And let's turn there in Romans chapter 4. Verse 15. That when Paul uses the word transgression, he isn't merely using it as a synonym for sin. And I think sometimes we, we do that as Christians. We use the word sin and we use the word transgression kind of as the same exact thing. And there's some reason we do that, but for Paul it's a little bit more nuanced than that. In Romans 4.15, he says this, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no transgression. He uses the same word transgression, sometimes translated violation. Where there's no law, there is no transgression. So remember how transgressions and violations go hand in hand with law. And turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And we're not going to be able to look at everything here, but I'd just like to take away one of the main points Paul makes here in Romans 5. 
about transgressions. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So interesting thing that sin was there, but it wasn't reckoned or counted until the law. In verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, the lawgiver, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of whom, him who was to come. The word there, the, the offense of Adam or the sin of Adam, is again the word transgression of Adam, meaning that people sin all the time, but they don't all sin in the way that Adam sinned. People sin but they don't all sin in the way that Adam sinned. What is the way that Adam sinned that's different than the way that a lot of people sin? And the difference is transgression. <laughs> because the difference is, is that Adam had a direct commandment from God not to eat from that tree, right? And so when he sinned, like everybody else sins and does things that are evil, he didn't merely sin and do that was, was against his conscience and do that which was against righteousness, but he actually transgressed a commandment of God and a law of God, making his sin transgression. So transgression is different than sin. Sin is failure to do what is right, of course, and everybody is sinners. But where there is no law, brothers and sisters, people console themselves that they haven't violated anything. You see? Without an explicit law, all we've got is an implicit command from God, or it's all implicit. It's not explicit. So you have a conscience that's telling you, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You have a conscience that says, don't do that, that's wrong. You have a conscience that says, do that, that's good. But it's all implicit. You have to kind of connect the dots and say, hmm, you know, there is a God, and hmm, he must have given me my conscience, and hmm, that means if I violate this conscience, I'm actually violating God. Truth and if you go against your conscience, that's sin, and you're a sinner, and you deserve destruction. But because it's Im implicit and not explicit, there's a difference between this and transgression. The law brings definition to what our conscience is saying. Remember we talked about this a while ago? The law draws a circle around us and says, here is where you must abide. Now you knew that before. But the law comes and explicitly commands you, thus saith the Lord, you must abide in this circle. And if you step outside of this circle, you have, you have sinned. You have violated my commandment and my will. You have transgressed. transgressed. And so this is what the, Paul is saying. Literally, it can be translated like this, and literal Bible translations do translate it like this. Why was the law given? In favor of violations, it was added. The law was given to draw the circle, to make his commands explicit, so people couldn't ignore their conscience, so people couldn't say, I've not violated anything, I haven't heard from God lately, you know, I haven't, I'm not doing anything that I, don't, I knew was wrong. The law was given to clarify and give definition to what is obvious in our conscience. I'm not saying we need the law to be guilty, brothers and sisters. I'm saying we need the law to stop being so stupid. You see, the law gives definition and says, here's what goodness is. 
and when we sin against it, we violate that explicit commandment of God. In favor of violations, it was added. This captures what Paul is saying. Andrew Jukes writes, Satan would have us prove to ourselves that we are holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. So no, the law was not given to stop our sins. The law was given to show us our sins until Christ came and dealt with our sins. Secondly, after Paul gives the brief answer to why the law was given, which he's going to explain in, in, in full detail in just a moment, he then talks about the circumstantial inferiority of the giving of the law. Paul immediately proceeds to show the inferior circumstances of the giving of the law to the superior circumstances of the giving of the promise. Now, I'm in no way, and Paul's in no way, implying that the giving of the law wasn't glorious when we say inferior circumstances. We're not saying it wasn't glorious. We're simply saying that the giving of the promise was more glorious. Yes, the giving of the law was amazing and dramatic. But the giving of the promise had superior circumstances. And here's what Paul's going to explain. In verse 19, Galatians 3, let's go back there again. He says... It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Now, this idea that the law was given through angels was a common understanding of the Jewish people, and it's reflected in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 7, 38 and 53, in Stephen's, uh, when he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, he actually mentions it twice. He said that the, that the law was given through angels. That was, of course, no one's denying the law was given by God. That's not, they're not saying that the law wasn't given by God, it was given through angels. They're simply saying that angels were the instrument through which God gave the law. And remember, Stephen says, and you, you hard-headed people, you haven't even obeyed the commandments that were ministered to you by angels. That's what he says to them in Acts 7. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, the author of Hebrews says, If the word that was spoken through angels received just punishment, if you violated the commandments of the law, even one of them, and you would receive punishment, how much more do you think are you going to be worthy of punishment if you disobey the word of the Lord? You see? If you disobey the word that was spoken from the Son... So there you see in Hebrews 12, the law was, it was understood, it was given through the instrument of angels. And so powerful is that, that any violation deserves judgment. But how much more do we deserve judgment if we hear directly from God? It also says, not only was the law given through the instrument of angels, it was also given through the agency or by the hand of a mediator literally by the hand of a mediator. Who is that mediator? It could be none other than Moses, the one whom the, the law repeatedly says, by the hand of Moses, and this was said by, the, through, by God by the hand of Moses, by the hand of Moses, by the hand of Moses, over and over and over again. Moses stood between the people and God, and he mediated between the people and God. 
So the law was given through the instrument of angels and through the instrument of the mediator. God did not speak with the people directly except at, at when he spoke the Ten Commandments directly from the mountain. But when God gave the law, he essentially gave it through Moses. Paul is drawing attention to this very important fact that when the law was given, there was distance between God and the people. Everything about this screams distance. And if you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, everything about it screams distance, doesn't it? Obstacles, roadblocks, things that have to go in between in order for you to hear from God and to relate from God and to talk to God and to have any kind of relationship with God. There was distance between God and the people. It was not direct. It was not friendly, was it? It was sinners encountering a holy and righteous God and it was terrifying and sinners cannot encounter a holy, righteous God directly. It was so terrifying, even Moses' knees were knocking. It had to be mediated, didn't it? Sinners could not have direct fellowship with God. It had to be mediated. What Paul does in verse 20 is he brings in a contrast. And he says a mediator had to be used to bring the law. And a mediator implies two parties that the mediator is mediating for, God and this other party. But in contrast to that, God is one. His point can be easily missed, but there's a contrast here. Now, a mediator is not of one, but of two. However, God is one. Here's the contrast. With the law, you have mediation, but with the promise, you don't have that same mediation. In the circumstance of the giving of the promise, think about it. There was no mediator. Was there terror when God promised Abraham the blessings? Was Abraham's knees knocking and was he so afraid and was there smoke and was there lightning and was there flashes of lightning and thunder and all of these things? No. There was no mediator. There was no terror. There was no distance. God came to Abraham and unconditionally, unilaterally bequeathed the blessing upon him in his love. Now, when I say there's no mediator, I'm saying that there's no person that has to go between, there's no angel that has to go between. It is true, however, that Christ is the mediator between God and man. Though, through Jesus Christ, God deals with us directly, we deal with him directly directly. Through Jesus Christ, there is intimacy, there is no distance. We have relationship with God as a friend. Amen? Amen. Through Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and man, by his death, not through angels, not through earthly priests, and not through earthly institutions, and not through any mediator that we can tangibly touch and put our hands on, that we can see now, God deals with us as friends, just as he dealt with Abraham as a friend. So the circumstances between the giving of the promise and the giving of the law were obviously different. The law was certainly more dramatic, and the giving of the promise was less dramatic, but don't miss the point. The giving of the promise was more glorious, because 
God and man were having fellowship with one another as friends through the mediation of Jesus. Without distance, I'm giving you blessing. I'm not terrifying you right now. I'm not scaring you. I'm not, you're, I'm not dealing with you as this sinner that I have to distance myself from and put angels and Moses and sacrifices in between because through Jesus Christ, I can relate to you as a friend. I think we fail to see as Christians that in our own lives, we have the more glorious relationship with God because it's not as dramatic. And we say, man, real relationship with God would look like Mount Sinai, you know? I mean, if I was really close with God, he'd be showing up. There'd be lightning, there'd be thunder, there'd be death, you know? There'd be all sorts of like crazy stuff happening. My knees would be knocking. All of this stuff would take place if I really had a close relationship with God and God really showed up in my life. And we fail to realize that through Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and his reconciliation of our sins, that there's actually no distance between us and God, no barriers between us and God. There's actually access between us and God, intimate friendship between us and God for us to enjoy, just like Abraham enjoyed with God. Isn't that amazing? And we think it's not as dramatic, so it's not as glorious. Mount Sinai was certainly more dramatic than what Abraham had. But yet Abraham was a friend of God. Israel at Mount Sinai was not God's friend. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Do you think God doesn't show up in my life and scare, my, scare the living daylights out of me so I'm not really close to him? <laughs> or do you realize that through faith, you, like Abraham, walk with God in intimacy? It's by faith, right? We don't see but that's what Hebrews 12 is saying. He says, look, you haven't come to the mountain inflamed in fire, right? You haven't come to Mount Sinai where Moses was shaking and everyone was afraid and the beasts were going to die. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to Mount Zion and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You can enjoy now that access that you have with God. The book of Hebrews is constantly saying, look, there's no distance anymore, right? The veil has been rent. The sacrifices of animals and all that that communicate distance and sin is gone. Jesus has atoned for your sin. You are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Come boldly before the throne of God. Come with confidence. Enjoy your God. How do you measure your intimacy with God? Through Jesus or through crazy stuff taking place like at Mount Sinai? And this is Paul's point here. The law was given because of transgressions, and furthermore, there was lots of distance when it was given. There was a mediator mediating between. But in verse 20, the contrast is, when God gave the promise, God is one. He was there with Abraham, no mediator that was of man or man's institutions or anything like that, because of Jesus. So Paul gives us a brief answer as to why the law was given. He shows us the circumstantial inferiority of the giving of the law with its angels and its human mediator. And finally, in verses 21 through 25, Paul explains how the law is not against the promise, but how the law actually serves the promise. The law and the promise are not fighting the law was actually given to serve the promise. 
We have seen how the law was given to show us our sin, to produce violations, to produce transgressions, to give definition to sin, to convince us all that we're sinners. We've seen that. Verse 21, the question is posed, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Is the law, was the law inserted and now there's a barrier between the promise and God and there's, God set up a problem? And this is the agitator's perspective. Because all they can think is that justification comes through obedience to the law. And so they're thinking, since justification comes through obedience to the law, and the promise awaits our obedience, and you say that the law was given simply to show us our sin, then was the law given by God to prevent the promise? See, all they can see is that justification comes through law. And so, Paul, if you're saying that the law just shows us how sinful we are, then there's no hope here. That just nullifies the promise. That just means the promise isn't ever going to be fulfilled. Is God schizophrenic? Is he contrary to himself? Is he doing one thing and then another that just is going to nullify his own works and his own promises? And Paul says, no. (laughs) No, he's not schizophrenic. (laughs) You just don't understand. And brothers and sisters, this section, 21 to 25, one of the most important passages in the New Testament, this is is where the Christian message shines. Okay? If you miss this, you really miss what Christianity is about. You miss what God was doing in history, and you'll never understand what this relationship is between the law and the promise, and you'll always be confused about God's character and God's works. But this is where Christianity shines, and this is, where people, this is what the world doesn't understand. This is why they get tripped up, because they don't see what Paul is about to say. The answer Paul gives is that the law was never given to impart life and to impart righteousness. Verse 21, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. He says, you guys would be right if the law had been given to give life. But it wasn't. As he says in 2 Corinthians 3, it was the ministration of death and condemnation. It was given to show you your sin. It was given to kill you. It was given to condemn you. It was given to define the precarious, dangerous situation all mankind is in under the wrath of God. The law was not given as the way for life. And only if justification is through the law is God schizophrenic. So you guys are saying, you guys, what you believe, you're making God schizophrenic. You see? You're saying that God, yeah, okay, God gives this promise, and then he gives this law, and we already know that law and promise are mutually exclusive. There's an intrinsic difference between those two things. So God must be schizophrenic. We also know the law doesn't work. God said from the beginning it would never work. So you guys make God schizophrenic. If you're not a Christian, you think God's schizophrenic and is confused and doesn't know what he's doing. On the contrary, Paul says, the law and the promise are complementary, not contradictory. It is justification by law that is contradictory to the promise. It is not law that is contradictory to the promise. 
And what Paul is now going to show is how the law, which was given to produce transgressions and to show us our sins, serves the promise. Look at verse 22. Instead of giving life, this is what it does. The scripture, instead of giving life, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So no, the law wasn't given to impart life. It was given to shut everybody up under, under sin. The word there, shut up, can best be understood as corralled. I think that's an excellent word here for us to understand the promise. The law was given to corral everybody under sin. Now, everybody was already sinful, but the law was given to corral us into that defined area called sin so we can all see that we're sinners. It was there to corral you. We're all wild horses out there running under the wrath of God. We don't think we're in any danger, and the law is given to corral us and to bring us into the place where we see that we are sin. Everybody, it's there to corral everybody. The scriptures show this. That is, what is written shows this. What is written corrals us all under sin. Both in that what is written lays out the rules of the law, and when you look at the rules of the law, you'll realize that you're actually guilty. What are the rules of the law? What is written in the law? Do your best. That's why people are still running around thinking that they're not guilty, because they don't look at what is written. Oh, God only requires me to do my best. He doesn't expect me to be perfect. Sure, I sin, but I can always just repent. Do you repent? Well, no, but you just have to want to repent, right? Do you want to repent? <laughs> well, <laughs> sometimes. What is written? We saw this in Galatians 3, verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. My friends, the, you go to the law of God, and it's there in black and white. You don't have to be a rocket science to figure it out. The law of God requires you to love God and to love your neighbor perfectly. Everything else is just commentary on that. What is written? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's not really difficult to understand those words, is it? <laughs> do you do it? No. Love God with all of your might, all of your mind, all of your heart. Do you do that? It's not rocket science. And it's failure to simply look at what the law is saying. And it's, it's amazing because Jesus had to come later and Say, you know, you guys are not reading the law. It really says what it says. It really means that. Be perfect. And if you just consider what is written, you'll realize you are corralled. You've been caught in the net. You are a sinner. The scriptures corral us all into sin, not only by showing us what is written in the law and its rules, but also the scripture gives us the verdict as well. All over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament, what is written is that there is no one who is good, not even one. So if you need any help with this, 
The scripture is very clear that no one keeps the commandments, right? Can you think of many verses in the Bible that says, nope, not even one, nope, not even, none are righteous. God looks down from heaven, doesn't see anyone who's obedient. None. Nope, not even one. There's not a man on the earth who does good and sins not. Who can say that they've cleansed their hands and purified their heart? Nobody. So if you need help kind of connecting the dots, it's there. You are corralled by the scripture and you are shown to be a sinner by the law. The law has got us all, brothers and sisters. The law has got us all. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says that whatever was written and whatever was said in the law, it was said to those who are under the law so that all the world would be guilty and be, would, be, would see their sin, would, their mouths would be shut, and they'd become guilty before God. All the world. This is the purpose of the law. And so there's these understatements that Paul uses. If you're under the law, it is... Be, it, follows that you are under sin. And if you are under sin, it follows that you are what? Under the curse and not the blessing. That's what the law is meant to show. Certainly, if we obeyed the law, we would have life. That's what Galatians 3.12 says. The one who does it will live. If you obeyed, you would have life. But the law was not given to give life, and God wasn't naive thinking it would give life. We don't obey. In Romans chapter 7, Paul gives the classic explanation of what happens when law comes to human beings. He actually says, The law that says if I obey it, it will bring me life, proves to be unto death for me. That's what he says, right? The law promises me life, and all I find is death. It comes and it kills me. Why? Because the law is sin? Because the law is bad? Because the law is cruel? No. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. But I am a sinner. And in me is no good thing. And the law doesn't uh, make it so. The law just exposes it to be so. The law shows me who I am. The law shows me that I am not good. And the law shows me that I'm under condemnation. Now this corralling is not an end in itself. God does not just give the law because he wants to just corral everybody under sin. But Paul says here in verse 22 that this corralling is a means to an end. In verse 22, the scripture has shut up everybody under sin so that, there's the purpose, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Do you guys see this logic here of God? As long as we think we're good, as long as we think we're not condemned, as long as we think we're righteous, we're obedient, we're going to be blessed because of how good we are, we are not going to put our faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And so the law comes to corral us sinners into a defined place where we realize we're sinners so that we can believe in Jesus Christ and receive the blessing. God is doing this for our good. God is doing this because he loves us. The law never was given to give life, but it was given from the beginning 
to bring us unto faith in Jesus Christ. The promise was always meant to be fulfilled through faith in Jesus Christ. From the very beginning. John Calvin says this, quoting a, a quote from him on Galatians 3.22. And I think these are beautiful words from Calvin. Think about Galatians 3.22. The scripture has corralled us all under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And he says, this sentence is full of the highest consolation. Do you believe that? Verse 22 is full of the highest consolation because it tells us that wherever we hear ourselves condemned in Scripture, wow, that's everywhere. That's a, that's a big place. This tells us that wherever we hear ourselves condemned in Scripture, there is help provided for us in Christ if we betake ourselves of Him. Why then does God so often pronounce that we are lost? It is that we may not perish by everlasting destruction, but struck and confounded by such a dreadful sentence, may by faith seek Christ through whom we pass from death to life. We pass from death to life through Christ. And I love how Calvin says this is so much comfort here because that means whenever you're reading the Bible and you find something that condemns you, you find something that corrals you, you find something that puts you in the category of a sinner, you can have comfort knowing, oh, God shows me this truth so that I might be saved. This is not the final word. Amen? So when you sin and all you can think of the verses in the Bible that condemns people for doing those things, you can think, yep, I do deserve condemnation, but it's there to corral me so that I might be saved through Jesus Christ. There's always hope, even when I'm facing those, those verses of condemnation. Calvin also says this, As men naturally are too ready to excuse themselves, so until they are roused by the law, their consciences are asleep. The law came and roused the sleepers, for this is the true preparation for Christ. This is what Paul is saying here. Why was the law given? Not for life, not what the Judaizers think, not what the agitators think. It wasn't the way to be blessed. It was never given for that reason. It was given to show us our sin and to rouse our consciences, which is the true preparation for faith in Jesus Christ. Awesome, isn't it? Isn't our God awesome, what he did? So when he gave the law, he wasn't naively, naive and under a delusion that we were going to do it. He said from the beginning we wouldn't. He had a plan in place all along from the beginning to save us through Jesus Christ. Praise our God who loves us sinners so much to do that. Without the diagnosis, the cure will not be accepted, will it? If I came to you, Ben, and said, here, take this medicine, you really need it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't take it, right? You'd be a fool to take it unless you became convinced that you actually needed that medicine and that it was the medicine that would cure your case. Jesus Christ didn't come for the healthy but for the sick. And you can see in his ministry, sick people flocked to him. Physically sick people flocked to him, right? Why did the sick people come to Jesus so much in so many numbers? Because one, they knew they were sick, and two, they knew he could heal them, right? If you knew you were sick and you knew there was a healer who was, had a 100% track record, you would be there, wouldn't you? 
And when Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy but the sick, he meant, I didn't come for the righteous but for the unrighteous. And brothers and sisters, when you know you're unrighteous, and you know that he heals the unrighteous and saves them and has a 100% track record, you go to Jesus. Amen? And the reason people don't go to Jesus, and we all know this from experience, is because they don't think they're unrighteous. Right? The, the, the Savior is here. I don't need a Savior. Right? Go get healed. I don't need to be healed. Actually, my friend, you are spiritually sick. And let me show you the diagnosis here in the law of God. God gave the law to lead us to Christ that we might be saved. Look at verse 24. This is now Paul making it explicit. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. It was given to lead us unto Christ. It was given to teach us and to show us we needed him. That we needed to be saved. That we needed to receive a righteousness that we could not provide for ourselves. That the only way to be blessed by God is for our sins to be dealt with by Christ in his cross and in his sacrificial death, in his mediating work. Our unrighteousness is cured by his giving his light, righteous life for us on the cross and taking away our sins through his sacrificial and substitutionary death. That is the cure. The blood of Jesus Christ is the medicine for unrighteous people and the way by which the blessing comes. That's the purpose of the law. You're a sinner, go to Christ. He will save you. Go to the Son of God. Go to what He has done. Don't trust in what you do. Trust in what He can do to meet the predicament of your sinfulness and your unrighteousness. This is the way of the Lord, isn't it? This is how God works. And you can see it all throughout the Bible. It is not the way of the Lord to leave salvation in our hands, is it? True or false? Is it the way God is to leave salvation in our hands, to leave deliverance in our hands, to help us out a little bit so that we can save ourselves? Is that the way of the Lord? Rather, is it not the way of the Lord to bring us to an end of ourselves and to the end of our strength and to the end of hope in other things besides him so that we would turn to him and that he would be our savior. Is that not the way of the Lord? The sum of the matter is spoken by Jesus in Matthew 19, 26, when the disciples actually asked Jesus, who then can be saved, Jesus? You've raised the standard so high that who then can be saved? They, did, they heard Jesus raise the standard of how you get into the kingdom of heaven to perfection. And they said, if that's the case, no one's going to be saved, Jesus. And here's what Jesus said in reply. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is not looking to the arm of our flesh. God is not waiting on us to do an impossible thing. There's nothing we can do 
to redeem ourselves or to ransom ourselves out of the curse of the law. We, when we are saved, are raised from the dead by him. He saves us and he does the impossible through Jesus. Such is the way of the Lord and the giving of the law is his way. One commentator said this, we are bound to confess the law served man right kindly. True. It, was a, it, it is a gift from God. In conclusion this morning, we return to the agitator's question, which they were right to ask. Why then the law? Why did God give the law? And in the, with their thinking, we actually share more in common than we might at first think. Consider for a moment that as they rightly pointed out, and I said earlier, the giving of the law was a major event in history, wasn't it? The giving of the law was a major thing that God did and no little thing. Also, the law does condition blessings upon righteousness, doesn't it? That's what the, that's what the agitator said. Hey, the law says that blessing depends on righteousness. What do we Christians say? Amen. The law does say blessings depend on righteousness, and we agree. The law does explain reality, right? The law does explain reality. It is true. God cannot bless us without righteousness. It is true. God does not and cannot overlook sin. That is true. The law does explain reality. We Christians agree with you. It is also true that the giving of the law was anticipated when God gave the original promise. When he gave the promise, he knew he was going to give the law. And it is also true that the law is a gift to bring us blessing. Just as they said. But you'll notice that we understand all of this very differently, don't we? Because we understand the purpose of the law differently and here we're confronted with two totally different ways of salvation. Instead of the law being the means to righteousness and the blessing, as the agitators think, we Christians understand that the law is the means to the means of the blessing, which is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who brings us righteousness, life, and blessings. And the law's purpose was given to bring us to him that we might be saved. It's true that God can't overlook our sins and bless unrighteousness. And get this, it is true that what happened at Mount Sinai, all of that terror, all of that thunder, all of that fire, the loud trumpets that didn't stop, the fear, the warnings and the threats, you come closer, you're going to die. All of that is absolutely true. Sinners and God, where there is no Christ and reconciliation, cannot meet. If there wasn't Moses and those angels, they all would have been dead. And it's no true with no it's not untrue with you and I too. If there was no reconciliation with Christ with us, brothers and sisters, and God showed up, all of us would be terrified and we'd be dead. Don't think it's any different. Without Christ, if God showed up, all of our knees would be knocking. If there wasn't if there was angels all of our knees would be knocking, and if there wasn't angels, we'd all be consumed. 
Don't think that because you live your days without any dramatic effects, that that means without Christ, you and God are okay and there's real no danger. Men will see on Judgment Day what incredible danger there is for sinners to encounter a holy God without a mediator. What happened at Mount Sinai is a true revelation of the righteousness and wrath of God, and it would be the same for us. But the promise is based not on our obedience to the law, but through Christ. He died for our sins. He brings righteousness to those who believe and life. We can have relationship with God as friends because of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And so we don't have to fear what happened at Mount Sinai because of Christ, who deals with us in a way that we don't deserve. God's word is trustworthy. When he gives his promise and he gives his pledge, he will follow through and he will bless Abraham, his descendants, and the world through Jesus Christ. He's not the kind of God who says, I'm going to take you to Disneyland on your fifth birthday and then goes back on his word. God promised blessing and he will come through. It's simply for us to believe in him and his faithfulness to his word and his, in his power to bring that to pass, which he brings to pass through Jesus Christ, who brings us righteousness. I'd like to close this morning with a quote from Martin Luther. The Jews think that the promises of God are hindered because of our sins. God, says Paul, does not slack his promises because of our sins or hasten them for our righteousness and merits. He regards neither the one nor the other. For his promise does not stand upon our worthiness, but upon his goodness and mercy alone. Therefore, where the Jews say the Messiah is not yet come, because our sins do hinder his coming, it is a detestable dream, as though God should become unrighteous because of our sins, or made a liar because we are liars. As if God wouldn't fulfill his pledge and become a liar because of our sins. Let God be true and every man a liar. He abides always just and true. His truth, therefore, is the only cause that he accomplishes and performs his promise, which he gives us through Jesus Christ by faith alone. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us give thanks for the awesome law of God, which God gave to show us our sins, to bring us to Christ, that we might be blessed and be brought to God. Let's pray. Father, you shut up everyone unto sin that you might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depths of the riches of your understanding, and how are your ways past finding out? Truly, Lord, your plans and purposes are so high above us, and we just step back and marvel at what you have done. Lord, I thank you that you are not a God who contradicts yourself. 
You're not a schizophrenic God who doesn't know what you're doing. You're not a naive God who does things hoping and wishing in things that are not going to happen. I thank you that you love us so much that you freely through Christ promised to bless this world and that you made the way through Jesus and that you overcame our stupidity and our sleepy conscience by your law. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who thinks that they're not really a sinner because they're not really that bad, I pray that today they would realize that they are corralled and that according to the truth of righteousness, they're unrighteous and they're guilty and they're worthy of death. I pray that you would show them that so that they would see there is no hope in themselves, but that they would see your glorious provision in Christ. And Lord, I pray for all of us Christians today who have believed that we would not be um, distracted and deceived away from this truth, but we would rejoice, Lord, that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, that there is no condemnation for us, and that we've been delivered from the old covenant into the new covenant, which is more glorious. And I pray that we would all learn to enjoy our relationship with God, with you, as friends, in an intimate way without distance. Help us to realize that we have that as children of God. Thank you for this time in your word, Lord. And thank you for the truth that sets us free. Burn these things into our hearts and our minds. Help us to think about these as we go. Help us to think about your way, Lord. And truly, you are awesome and worthy of all of our praise, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.